you begin to realize that when you're putting out an episode each day, not much changes for the front monologue of your episode intro. So we're just going to dive right in. My guest on the show was, and is, (laughs) was for me, is for you, Neil Staley. Uh, Notably, he was one of a few coaching clients that I took on for a period of time. I'd like to think that in some ways I have helped him along his journey, but I can certainly say he has helped me in mine to experiment and explore with marketing techniques in the real world. His book, The Warrior Gene, uh, does not have a set publication date yet. He has done an amazing job of getting professionally edited and a professional cover design, putting his money where his mouth is. And this book is fantastic. So I do want to say I do not have permission from him to read any of his book, but I thought what better way to give you an idea of the kind of quality of fiction that he writes in case you're interested in being maybe an early reviewer for the book. I dare say he would be willing to uh, give out copies in exchange for a fair and honest review of the book. So you want to reach out to him through Twitter. If you're hearing this episode and thinking that sounds like a book I'd love to read and be really happy to review. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and read a couple pages of the warrior gene, which I have in my possession. And then we will move directly from that into the interview. If you want a copy of the warrior gene, reach out to Neil. Uh, I will not be able to help you as I only have one copy that he gave me. But definitely reach out to him uh, about getting an advanced reader's copy. I'm almost positive he would love to do that for you. Uh, Again, without further ado, here is a bit of Neil Staley's The Warrior Gene. Chapter 1. It didn't take long to work out why the two men had found the only open parking space on the entire street. The orange hue of the sodium streetlight flickered incessantly in time with the plink, plink, zzz, plink of the bulb and cast an inconsistent, jittery, tangerine glow around the town car. They sat inside, wearing heavy overcoats, accustomed to the practice of the nightly vigil inside a car with the engines switched off and sub-zero temperatures pressing against the windows. Apex Laboratories was renowned in the private security sector for its fastidiousness in recruiting its personnel and treated them with a sort of surprising degree of professionalism not usually found outside the inner circles of government security. Agent Reginald Thompson still held the faintest tinge of Barbados accent that clung on to his rambling baritone words even after four decades of life in Washington, D.C., most of which he had spent in the employ of the United States Treasury. His partner of four years, Harry Kane, couldn't have been a more polar opposite. Tall, pale, and gaunt, he passed the time obsessively filing and polishing his nails and working over a piece of nicotine gum with a slow rolling chew that reminded Reg of a lazy Californian cow on its last piece of succulent cud. Well, you really know how to pick a spot, Reg said, reaching forward to turn up the football game on the radio and trying to ignore the constant flicker of the street light through the windshield. The Redskins were playing the Cowboys, and he wasn't about to let the hours of uninterrupted silence go to waste. What can I say? Harry replied in a drawn and southern draw that was as slow and lazy as his chewing. It takes a natural. You wouldn't have found this spot if there was a sign in flashing lights with your name on it. Reg chuckled, a deep rumbling sound that always reminded Harry of some evil cartoon sorcerer. That's because I wouldn't have parked in a spot under the only goddamn broken light on the street that's gonna give you and me a seizure before our shift is out. A pair of car headlights appeared farther along the street. Harry stopped, filing his pinky nail, and looked up. The vintage Camaro pulled up to the curb just shy of the entrance to the apartment building on the other side of the street. The young man who climbed out shot them a look before rounding the car and disappearing inside. That's a hell of a ride, Harry said, admiring the pristine Camaro before returning to his manicure. Do you think he has any idea how important he is? Reg said, keeping his eyes fixed on the building until he saw the light go on in the seventh floor windows high above. Nope, Harry said. Not a clue. I'm surprised that they let him out there at all. Reg nodded. Well, 
Let's make sure he gets back in one piece. I don't want to be handing out my resume to the downtown mall if I can help it. The game kicked off, the thin, rasping sounds of the cheering crowd seeping through the town car's cheap speakers like a distant, echoing static. And there you have it. Sorry about the terrible character voices. I am not an audiobook fiction reader. And so, uh, Neil, when you hear this, just, uh, you know, forgive me. For all the rest of you, here we go. Hey, I'm the Reluctant Book Marketer, and I've got just one question for you. Do you see your novel as a million-dollar asset? Because if you don't, and you want to, you're in the right place. This is the only show for novelists who want to shift their mindset away from fear and toward abundance. Because you can sell more books than you ever dreamed when you believe in what you're doing. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, it was some time ago now. Uh, I wrote my first book in 1998. Um, I really thought it was going to be, like you said, fanfare and trumpets when I, when I got it published and off I would go and uh, it, it kind of didn't work out that way. And, and uh, so now I'm looking at it a little bit differently. I'm a far better writer now than I was then. So um, yeah, I'm just looking to, to see if I can address it in a different way to not necessarily writing for the fanfare and stuff, but to see if I can get a little bit more success from that initial push at least. Sure. Talk about the process of publishing in 1998. because It's, it's going to be very different than um, what we're doing today. Well, initially, uh, I had to make lots of phone calls and write lots of letters and send lots of letters in the mail. Um, I wrote a query letter on a typewriter and thought that was actually pretty kitschy and cool at the time. Um, Lots of manila envelopes out and then getting them back through the door and really just the same thing as uh, as I would do now, except in in a physical mail form rather than electronic mail and concentrating on how do I get in touch with publishers directly because I, I wasn't really you know familiar at all nobody was there to say oh you need to maybe look for an agent or something mm-hmm. look for representation I went to the phone book I looked for publishers and I made phone calls who do I send this to oh you could try this person okay so I'm writing notes and I'm sending it exactly as they said it and yeah uh, and getting them on the doormat, you know, through the letterbox in the, in the morning, I get a rejection with my, my my manuscript returned to me with a nice handwritten or hand type or type letter. And uh, when it did finally happen, I picked up that manila envelope and opened it. And there was a, we'd like to publish your your book. So there that's was a awesome. real shock for me. Yeah. One morning it was, yeah. it was interesting. And then talk just briefly. That's, I don't, I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but talk briefly about what the process was like when they offered to publish you, what kind of contract did you have to sign? What were the promises on their side? What were their expectations of you? Uh, where was the breakdown in the process? I would be interested to know that. So I got a uh, phone call. Uh, it was a, a publishing house called Minerva and it was uh, based in London. Uh, and I lived in uh, in Cambridge, which is about you know, 45 minutes, an hour north of London. Uh, so I went down there. They asked me to come down. And I spoke with somebody. It was a very impressive building, very impressive. It was like a, a kind of almost anonymous-looking office building from the outside. And then when you go inside, you know, the lobby is, uh, you know, floor to ceiling. It was about 20-odd feet of wow. books, library books and everything. It was very kind of bookish. And I really was really impressed by that. Yeah. And they take you up to the fifth or sixth floor and you're getting more intimidated every every level you go up. <laughs> uh, so I, I spoke to somebody and they basically said that um, they were going to be handling the whole process. And the first thing we would do is uh, a couple of rounds of edits and that I would be working with an editor and went back and forth with that. Several trips down to the office, I would carry the manuscript back with all of my, my edits on it. Um they would handle all of the the, the promotion and uh, mm. putting it, placing it in bookstores and stuff. They told me which uh, stores it would it would be in um, and when. And really, I the breakdown for me started when I would go to certain bookstores looking to see if my book was on the shelf because that's what I really wanted to see. 
Mm-hmm. That was my validation. My book is on the shelf next to yeah. an author that I might recognize, you know. So um, that didn't happen. Even mm-hmm. when I was like, hey, you told me it was going to be in this bookstore. Funnily enough, they told me a lot of the bookstores it would be in would be like in train stations and airports and stuff, right. places like that. And I was like, okay, well, I'll go look. Didn't find anything. So then I started to receive, um, you know, I suppose obstacles were put in my way. I was, I was getting less callbacks and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really sinister or anything. I wasn't, I don't think I was being ghosted or anything like that, but it was harder to have those questions answered. So when, you know, eventually I did get hold of somebody and they said to me that they were selling the books, uh, the publisher was selling, being sold to uh, mm-hmm. another company. Mm-hmm. And they asked me if I wanted to buy the rights back yeah. for the book because the contract, obviously, they had sole distribution rights in the UK and Europe. So I, I basically said, yeah, okay, I'll argue the fact. I want my book back. Yeah. Um, and at this point, I was thinking about uh, making the, the move from England to California, where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of worked out well in that way. But it literally was a moment where they said this was going to happen and this is where my book would be and mm-hmm. it wasn't so yeah that would that would have been I, I can only partly feel the sense of heartbreak because i've not had that specific situation happen to me before but to have uh, crossed so many different uh bridges and uh, overcome so many obstacles to get to that moment would have just been really crushing i think um so kudos to you for uh, continuing to write. Now that was in 98 and this is going to be, you are going to republish that book uh, with some pretty hefty edits on it. And then you're going to be publishing a new book as well. Were you writing consistently from 98 until 2022 or what happened in the intervening years? Well, in the intervening years, 2003, I made the move to California. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I I met a lady and we got married and uh, we had a a son very early on, Uh, two years old. He was diagnosed with autism and that took over everything. Yeah. Um, That was, uh, that took me a long while to get over. I'm not going to lie. I I kind of mourned what I thought was going to be the loss of my life, you know, and at that point, but you know, I went through that and got over it, but really writing wasn't on, uh, on my radar because I didn't feel like I had the energy and the time to, um, Mm -hmm. you know, to put into it. So it did wait, for quite a while but then around about 2000 what are we at now about 2013 i started this notion of okay i'm going to rewrite the original book and the sequel to it it's a it was originally planned as a three book series uh, and also came up with this idea for a new book which i you know experienced the same thing as i did with the first book i sat down to write with a title I came up with this title and I sat down and it just poured out. Mm. Um, and that was the new book. So from that, from that moment there, it was, it was a case of let's do the, let's do the querying and let's do the running edits as I'm doing all of that. And let's try and really nail down the query letter and, and pitch it. And uh, while I'm writing, I was trying to kind of juggle those balls, but, you know, there's, there never really seemed like enough uh, hours in the day, you know, and I'm, I'm having a full-time job and I've got part-time mm-hmm. work and I'm, you know, with this, my son and everything. So now I have a, a lot more time, well, not a lot more, but I have more time to uh, uh, dedicate to, to writing and all of the peripheral stuff as well. It's not just sitting down and tapping the keyboard, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you and I have had a handful of different conversations, somewhat back and forth over Twitter messages. Uh, we've jumped on the phone a couple of times. But yeah, there's so much more to writing than just the actual composition, the editing, uh, and the rewriting that, that you do. There's, there's the marketing element of it and trying to position yourself before you even publish the book to uh, be in a good spot when it comes time to to hit publish. So 2013, you start taking things more seriously. A couple of things I want to recap that I think are really important to just highlight and think about is one, that mindset of mourning, like having your your kid finding out that he's diagnosed with autism and feeling like everything's about to change. For one, I, I want to relate with you and anybody else who's listening and has had this experience. Um, the first time I had a kid, period, 
uh, it was that same kind of feeling of like, oh, my freedom is gone and it's never going to be the same. And I've lost out on all of the the hobbies and the, the fun that we have. And there's this, I think, I don't, I, I don't even understand the, the, the reason behind it, but a lot of people will talk about children being the apple of their eye and it's all good. And kids are the best thing that ever happened to them. And I love my kids and I can't imagine life without them, but they're not the best thing that's ever happened to me. My, my wife, for one, is the best thing that's ever happened to me, but my writing existed before all of them. My desire to do that existed before them. And so if you're a person who has the mindset of like, hey, I love writing and I love what I'm doing, it's okay. That's good. You should love it. And there's nothing wrong with you. You're not a defective person. You don't need to go to therapy to overcome your love of writing, to be more devoted to your family. You need to take good care of your family and love them and all of that kind of stuff, as long as it's a healthy relationship. But family is an addition to the person that you were when you came into it. And so I just like, I just wanted to affirm for you that I understand at least a piece of that feeling. Um, you and I both actually have kids on the spectrum from the little I've gathered. Mine are probably not as uh, high needs as yours, but certainly high needs. And that as well can be really challenging to feel like, is it okay to have an independent life? Yes, I would say absolutely. And I think it's, um, it's in some ways more essential for, you know, parents of, of, of kids on the spectrum and kids with special needs um, to have an independent life, or at least, you know, to be able to set aside some really valuable time for themselves. So, you know, it goes without saying, I don't think I'm original in, in saying that I'm echoing many people's thoughts and words yes. in, in saying that, but um, I found that what I do in that special time, if you like that alone time is, um, is what contributes the most to my, sense of well-being and my sense of balance and mm. that is writing i've tried many things and i've gone and tried shooting and shooting ranges and i have a motorcycle and oh let's just go and ride a motorcycle and that's fine but it's very transient mm -hmm. um but writing is um is something that i mean i can cliche it by saying it's literally woven into the fabric of who i am i don't think i could stop writing and if right. i did now I, I realized that I missed it during those intervening years where, you know, I was starting a family and everything, but it was always there. That want and need to write was always there. Mm -hmm. um, but allowing myself now the time to really focus on it. And I've got the support around me now to say, Hey, you know, why don't you, instead of doing what you're doing now, which might be just running around the house, feeling like I need to be busy and doing something and organizing something or cleaning something. Why don't you just chill and go and put your headphones on and sit mm -hmm. down and try and try and create for a little bit. And yeah, um, and that's really important. So yes, you can. And yes, you should. Yeah. Um, and then I want to, I want to dive into starting to talk about this, the marketing mindset that you have, what you want to accomplish and all of that. Um, before doing that, uh, I want to talk about the process that you have, because you've experienced two different things. I think one in 98, when you went with the original publisher, they did all the editing for you. They picked the cover for the book. They, uh, did the the proofreading, they would have done the any kind of content edits that you needed, any developmental edits to try to sharpen it up, right? All of that kind of stuff they did for you. Yeah. Um, I, at the time, I was a graphic artist. Anyway, I've been a graphic artist mm -hmm. professionally since I left school. So um, I did say I kind of want, a, you know, an imp in some input in that. And they did let me, you know, have quite a bit of, of say in the cover, but really that was it. And um, and, and everything else, I was just being kind of pulled along for the ride, so to speak. I uh, didn't really have a lot of say, but the edits that, you know, were literally sitting down with somebody line by line, this look at your notes and lots of sticky notes and, you know, the red Sharpie and all of that. So yeah. going back home and then oh, going through it. And one thing that really helped me, the, the editor there was a very nice guy. And I t I'm ashamed I forgot his name, but um, he said, if you really want to look grammatically at your manuscript and catch everything read the manuscript backwards yes <laughs> last page to first yeah so i so i did that and i caught wow. so much stuff yeah I did. Did. I, really, I did do it it was it's a real struggle because your your mind wants to get into the flow of the story your mind wants right. to kind of go where it's taking you and you can't it's not really making sense and i found myself saying i'm going to just do chapter at a time i'll read yeah. the last chapter no 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 you can't, you can't do it yeah <laughs> you just want to get into it 
just technically speaking, are you reading one paragraph at a time? Are you reading a paragraph and then going back a paragraph? Or are you literally like scanning with your eyes to find periods and then reading sentence and then grabbing a sentence and then grabbing a sentence? Uh, I just did it page by page. I opened it yeah. at the last page and I read that page to the bottom gotcha. and then went to the next page. The next to page. The bottom. Okay. And, and it's, it, it did make sense, obviously. At least my, my mm-hmm. brain was saying, okay, this sentence needs to be structured like this. Okay. But there's a comma that shouldn't be there. It was allowing me to concentrate more on the format and the structure of the mm-hmm. writing rather than this is where the story is going. What's going to happen next? Yeah. So that was, yeah. that was good. That worked out well. That's cool. Yeah. I, I know people who uh, not while recording their audiobooks, which I've recorded the audiobook to, to my book that's coming out, Seven Figure Marketing Mindset for Novelists. Um, and I, I caught like a couple of things that if I had the opportunity, if it wasn't already in, you know, in press, ready to go, I probably would have changed, but they're not like, they're not errors. They're just, when you read it out loud, you're like, oh, the flow's a bit different than I wanted that to be. So that's another thing that you can do uh, to, to help is, is read every word out loud. How tedious. Um, the reason I asked that question is to try to set up the conversation a little bit about self-publishing and uh, the editing process, because I think for me, the biggest issue I see right now with authors is trying to push the publish button without paying for the edit. So I want to hear, and I, if you if you went forward without paying for editing, that's totally fine. I just want to hear exactly where you're at with your process of your new book. Uh, did you pay for an edit? If so, why? If not, why not? So I did. I did pay for an edit and it was uh, invaluable, I think. Um, I did run through it myself. I did the back to front. I did all of that. I looked at it. I was pretty secure with it, uh, you know, from a story standpoint, from how it was, how it was written. I cut about 25,000 words out of it after the editor had taken a look at it because there was a whole section of the book Beautiful. where... They just said this isn't really maintaining the you know the agency of any of the characters. It'd be great in the second book as a flashback, maybe because it mm. sets the scene with a certain person or the background or whatever, uh, but it's not propelling the story. Yeah. So those are the things I would have been blind to that the mm. edit really really helped with. Um, so great. I would I would yeah I would do that on every book. I would definitely encourage people who are thinking of self publishing to pay for the edit. Otherwise you'll pay for it in some way that you don't want to later on. I'm sure. Yes. That's uh, a beautiful clip right there. I want to, I want to use that clip as, as I'm getting ready to promote <laughs> this episode, because if you don't pay for it now, you're going to pay for it later. That's exactly right. Uh, okay. So the hardest part and the thing that you can't pay for, this is, this is where I think that most authors are, are, and I just said, editing is a huge thing. So this is the worst. And it's that authors think that either they can pay for this element uh, or that they are doing enough, or that uh, it's some combination of luck that that creates a viral selling book. None of those things are ultimately true. You cannot pay for this. Uh, and it's not luck. Now, there are moments, I mean, people would say that uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And in that way, I would agree with you. If that's your definition of luck, we're good. Uh, but it's ultimately the amount of energy and effort that you personally are willing to put into the marketing of your book. So you're getting ready. You've got your cover design. You and I actually talked about that on some phone calls outside of this podcast. You've paid for your edit. The book is ready to go to press. Now we're starting to talk about how do we find your reader and how do we make a one-on-one connection? Um, You can feed back to me some of the things that you and I discussed, but talk to me mostly about what's worked for you. Where are you feeling you've connected with your reader and how clear are you on the vision of who's your ideal reader? So really Twitter has been a a bit of a revelation for me. I'm very late to the party with Twitter. I, yeah. you know, I had a, uh, you and I discussed this as well because I was asking how to get the best out of that as a marketing tool and as a, a way to connect with potential readers. And I think because I was so late to it, Twitter kind of recognized me as somebody that has had an account for a long time, but you don't do much. So we're not going to help you out at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Let's prove yourself. And then, you know, we'll start feeding you more people or however it works. So, uh, Twitter obviously is uh, something I'm getting far, far more used to, and I see it as a, a, an immense resource, at least to garner the kind of uh, reader that would then maybe talk about your book to other people, and you know, and talk to you, uh, talk about your book and, and you as an author to groups that they might be a part of, and things like that. Um, I'm at that stage now where, as you said, you know, I'm ready to press that launch button 
everything's pretty much ready to go. But I do not feel like I've put anywhere near the effort and energy in mm. and the resources into laying that kind of foundation to uh, to give me the best step forward as I can as I can as far as making people aware of it. That's my biggest thing. Like, how do people know where I am, who I am, and what I've written, and making them sort of interested in reading what I've written. Yeah, you know, that's that's the thing. That, those are the questions uh, that I have, and so my strategy initially has been connecting with people who I see maybe follow people that read the kind of things that I've written. Yeah, um, which in itself has been uh, a bit of a minefield actually because mm-hmm. I'm one of those. I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm a writer that you know. Someone says, "What genre is your book?" I'm like, "Well, it's a thriller, but it's a horror. It's a supernatural thriller horror." And is it kind of a, an adventure, action adventure, thriller, supernatural horror? I, I, you know, and where do I go with that? And so yeah. putting those obstacles in my way has not helped me at all in overthinking mm-hmm. that. So I think trying to find that narrow focus on where is my reader, how do I get them, uh, and how do yeah. I get them interested in reading my book? That's where I need to be. Yeah. Um, it, it, for, for anybody who listens to the podcast quite a bit, it, you can't really get through an episode uh, without talking about Stephen King. So this is the obligatory, <laughs> let's talk about Stephen King moment in the podcast. Um, try just as a mind exercise, this is off the top of my head, to categorize the genre of the book, The Stand. What genre is The Stand? My initial thought would be it's a horror novel. Okay. But that's because... Uh, you said Stephen King, so that's yeah, obviously yeah. implanted into my brain. You know the <laughs> yeah. old king of king of horror thing. Yeah. Um, but then when you start to break it down, is uh, is it speculative? You know, is mm-hmm. it otherworldly forces being manifested in our own world? You know, so that makes yeah, it. Yeah, you've make got a devil difference? character exactly. Yep. Exactly, you've got a devil character. So um, then there's good versus evil, and there's uh, lots of suspense. Is it a suspense thriller? So mm-hmm. now I'm not, I'm trying not to answer your question by answering all the the things I think might make it an answer, but it's yeah, yeah. to me, it's probably uh, a suspense horror novel. I, you know, I, that would yeah. be my, that'd be my take on it. But if you have an answer, please let me know. You know what? I don't. And that's, I think that's actually part of, part of the, the, the mind exercise of the question. For me, the one that stands out the most is the post-apocalyptic element. Um, so I, I, I would think of it in terms of, uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, except that one is a very different feeling post-apocalyptic. And Cormac then, I think, uh, deals with horror himself uh, in Blood Meridian. That book, I, I, how can you not call that book horror? And if you haven't read any of these books, it's okay. I'm just like pulling from my own uh, catalog of books that, that are ungenreable in my opinion, right, but the right. author themselves stands in a certain place. So you have King being the master of horror, and you get Cormac McCarthy being sort of the heir of Faulkner and they get their, their little niche and then they get to do whatever they want because you already know them. They are the brand. It doesn't matter anymore what genre they write. They just put something out and you're like, Oh, right. Cormac McCarthy. I'm going to read the passenger because I've been waiting for almost 20 years for another novel. Thank you very much. I'm so excited. I'm like practically bleeding from my eyes, <laughs> but uh you know, that's the reason I ask is because when it comes to your novel, you you're on the right road when you think about what books are kind of like it, what books evoke a similar emotion to the emotion that I want to do with my book. Where am I pretty safe in betting that if somebody liked that book, if they gave it a five-star rating or if they identified with that author, that they're going to connect to my voice and my story regardless of its genre. Um, so having having said all of that and set the stage, do you have any books in mind right now that you just think like, yeah, that, that book really resonates with mine or vice versa, technically? Uh, not, not really specifically a, a book, but two things come to me all the time when I'm describing somebody, when they say, you know, who would this appeal to? You know, it's this thing that you often put in a, in a query letter, you'll put, um, you know, it will appeal to fans of this Mm -hmm. person or this movie or this book. And the two things that always come to me with this particular book that, um, that I'm about to release is Tom Clancy and Constantine. Okay. So it's got that 
And Constantine, uh, I know of as the movie with Keanu Reeves. Is that still the same thing? Yeah, it yeah, might yeah, be different, yeah. but it's the same thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, sh- I should have uh, clarified that. But yeah, Constantine, the movie. So if you think about the, the Keanu Reeves movie, Constantine, it's, sure. uh, it's, you know, it's got that really you know, cool, dark, gritty you know, aesthetic to it. The, the subject matter is done in a way where you know, you know, people can say, I'm really getting into this as a horror action thriller suspense movie or you know mm-hmm. they, they can take away from it whether they want but that to me combined with elements of the way tom clancy writes his book and, you know it's it's a global thing and there's this uh, action thriller you know kind of globe trotting element to it as yeah. well um you know it's it's hard to i don't want to just say this happens then that happens and then people do this and people do that but mm-hmm. uh it's definitely got the those two things they came to me immediately i didn't really have to think about it yeah. Perfect. Okay. So now there's a couple of things to pause on here. And these are things that, you know, you and I maybe have talked about to some degree, but we're also performing for everybody who's uh, paying attention to this conversation. Um, there is a small challenge that both you and I will face when trying to reverse engineer from this perspective, you with Constantine, me with Groundhog Day. So the novel that my agent picked up and was shopping, uh, it was The Big Sleep and Groundhog Day. And Groundhog Day is a movie. So people who love Groundhog Day might not love my book simply because not everybody who watches movies reads books. Same with Constantine. Not everyone who loves that movie will love your book simply because they don't read books. Um, And that, that does create a level of challenge, but it also is a hidden asset in that movies are better at conveying feeling more richly than books are. And that's because of speed. Anytime you pump content into your, your brain, into your processing faculties faster, you create more intense explosions of feeling. So you have a better sense of the feeling for your book than some people will who have only picked comp title books. Uh, with that in mind, you started to talk a little bit about that kind of like that dark, gritty feeling of Constantine. Try to distill the emotion for me a little bit more um, to where it is no longer attached to genre words. What's the feeling you get when you watch Constantine? The feeling I get when I watch Constantine is, honestly, um, it was one of those those movies where when I went into it, I I first heard about the movie. Constantine is based on a, uh, someone said to me, it's based on a graphic novel and, you know, it's uh, angels and demons and God and the devil and stuff. So I went into it thinking of God, the devil, good versus evil, very kind of clear. That was a very clear image. What I took away from it was how they managed, uh, uh, you know, in making that movie was conveying the struggle of the character was conveying um, the the world actually around. I was going to say the world that they all lived in. You don't actually see a ton of it. You know, there isn't a lot of scene and world building going on in that, in that movie. It's very, very character driven. And I really like that. Um, and it's very cool. Uh, the way it's shot, the way it's lit, it's very cool. Very punchy. Temperature wise, um, like cool, cool temperature wise. Yeah. yeah. It's, okay. There's nothing warm and fuzzy when you're when you're watching that movie, you know. So but there there I, is so like the the difference. Sorry to interrupt. The difference would be like John Wick is a hot kind of a filming in in that they actually right. use a lot of explosive fiery imagery. But you're yeah, talking yeah. about Constantine having more of like that cold, almost like ice blue sort of toned down. I or say, yeah, I, I would say more. It, it, it's less tactile than that. You know, from a visual standpoint, it came mm-hmm. across as a feeling. It's a very toned down, cool movie restrained. from a feeling. Restrained, yeah. And, and I think it forces you to kind of really acknowledge what's going on with the people in the movie and the characters and the subject matter. So um, I, I came out of that movie going, wow, there were so many things to unpack from it. You know, it, actually, the guy that I, uh, my friend and I went to see that, and he was just like, man, you know, I, you know, I don't like things with like, you know, the, the old angels and stuff is sure. over the top for me. And I'm like, well define over the top when you're talking about the two greatest powers and, you know, and mm-hmm. um, so honestly taking that into my, into my book was clearly subconscious because when I was writing the query letter and I thought, okay, this appeals to fans of, and I immediately wrote Tom Clancy. One of my favorite books I've ever read is uh, red storm rising by Tom Clancy. I've read it four yeah. or five times. 
Um, and I, clearly I have elements of that and that kind of structure in my book. But the second thing, when I put Constantine, I didn't even think about writing it. Mm -hmm. I just, it just came out. So oh, naturally I'm carrying great. it from the movie. Yeah. And I'm a very visual um, learner and I'm a graphic artist. And so mm. when I write, when I write that process, when I take in that movie, I'm obviously subconsciously, like you said, I'm jamming all this stuff into my brain, whether it's from a book or from a movie, but instantly you're getting it in two hours, mm -hmm. this entire story forced into your, into your brain. So I'm constantly thinking about it. When I write, my process is I play the movie of what my story is in my mind and I write what I'm seeing. Yeah. So that I have a, I have a friend who does exactly that same process. He's a terrible writer, um, but he's described to me how he writes and he's, he doesn't consider himself a writer. So even if he knows who I'm talking about, he doesn't consider himself a writer. He's tried his hand at it a couple of times, but that is not how I do things. It's so foreign to the way that I compose that it's crazy. So sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it's just, and it's, you know, it's not for everybody, but everybody that's, that's read anything that I've written, uh, and I'm talking about mostly, you know, friends, family, friends of friends, you know, I've got, I've got that circle, but I've been lucky that I've had a few people that I don't know who have been able to sit and talk with me and, and say, um, you know, what they, what they think of it. But, most of the people will say it's like I was watching a movie when I was yeah. reading that book, you know, and I, I guess maybe my form of description or, or however I want to do it, my pacing, however I try and do that. I don't sit and consciously think I need to pace this scene like this. The scene comes out as it is because I can see it yeah. uh, and it doesn't work for, for everybody, but that's definitely how I do it. So watching that movie, Constantine, if I watch a movie like that, then at least the pacing elements and um, punctuated by um, action and drama and dialogue and all of that goes into the story without really me, me having to think about it. It's very easy for me to see it and then just lay it down on, uh, on the screen, if you like. I was going to say paper, but yeah. I don't do that much. <laughs> Right. Okay. So, so here, here's where we're going to actually get into some exercises that you can do that I think will be really effective. If you're listening in, this is the moment where you get kind of the tedious, cringy kind of music, because what I'm actually going to prescribe to get some of the first writers is going to be, or excuse me, readers is going to be a fair amount of work. Um, I think we talked about it at the beginning of this conversation. I had these conversations so often, if I didn't mention it, I'll mention it again. But um, in fact, no, I know just where I was talking about it before. Um, the amount of work it's going to take to get your first ball of readers is extremely a lot. It, think of it as like uh, building a snowball, the avalanche, you know, you pack it down real tight. You make that first little bit tight so that when you start rolling it in more snow, it can pick things up and gain size and speed. The bigger the ball, the faster the momentum. It sucks that it works that way because literally if you're a famous person and you walk into a restaurant, you get your meal comped almost every time because you being there is such a draw that just like they're going to get more business because you are there. So they comp your meal. You don't need a comp. You already like have arrived. You could buy everybody's meal in the restaurant without feeling it. Um, it's the same with momentum. You're going to do way more work to get these first 15 really avid readers than you're going to do to get 1,500 when you don't need 1500 new readers to survive and, and be famous. So what I want you to look into, and I think I know the answer to most of these questions, um, but I, I'm not hundred percent positive. One, find a fan group on Facebook. Even if you're not active on Facebook, find a fan group for Constantine. I'm fairly certain it exists, that there's a fan page out there somewhere. Every person who's a fan of Constantine has at least a small chance of liking your book. So then research one by one and see if any of them list uh, things that they enjoy doing hobbies as being reading. If any of them have a hobby of reading and they enjoy that movie, they're probably one among your target audience. Uh, two on IMDb, I believe that you can extrapolate people who have given Constantine a five-star rating or maybe rotten tomatoes. There may be other aggregators that are going to do ratings that you can actually see the profile that gave it a five-star rating. Figure out if those people are on Twitter Facebook, Instagram, where they hang out, and try to pull them inside of your world. Uh, those first 10 people that fit that group of being Constantine fans who read, offer to give them a free electronic book in exchange for their thoughts. Don't ask anything else. Don't ask for a review. Don't ask for a rating. Nothing. Just ask them for their thoughts. 
if I'm right on this part of the targeting, I've never tried this with movies before. It works well with, with books. And I'll get into that a little bit more in a second. If it works right with, with movies, it's going to work really well because you already have that really strong emotional connection that you don't get with books in the same way. Um, The reason I say that is because I am a huge fan of Stephen King's work, but for a different reason than other people are. I actually, I've never been scared when reading one of his books. Not never. One time I've been scared and that's a different story, but horror doesn't appeal to me. So if you, if you were like, oh, you like Stephen King, then you'll like Dean Koontz or you'll like Clive Barker. You're wrong. I don't like either of them at all. Actually, I find Dean Koontz to be kind of offensively uh, trivial. Sorry, Dean. (laughs) But I think that there's a difference with movies for some reason, the way that we connect with movies, it seems to, I I don't know. What are your thoughts there? I'm the same. Um, I I do love to read. Um, I'm very, very selective and I don't mean, you know, in a snobbish way at all, but it's from my point of view, it's a time, it's a time issue. So when I used to commute to work um, and I had a 30, 40 minute drive each way, Mm -hmm. An audiobook was my best friend. Um, now, an audiobook is usually when I'm vacuuming. So, yeah. my time spent listening to or slash reading books has been dramatically cut. Mm. So, movies are a lot easier to convince myself to sit down in front of and watch because it then becomes part of my decompression process. And yeah. I'm okay, I'm relaxing, I'm, I'm shedding the day, and I can watch a movie and then I can start to, to, to take that in. And, like you said, bec- you know, it, because people can connect much more quickly with movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm, like I said, I'm visually, that's how I learn and process things and, and, uh, uh, yeah. and, and take in information. It works really well for me. So that immediate emotional visual collect- connection with a movie is a lot easier for me to say, I'm going to do this rather than I'm going to pick up a book. that's going to take me two weeks or two months to, to read. Yeah. There's also the communal element that you just mentioned. Uh, well, you didn't mention it, but you alluded to basically part of that decompressing process is you could have somebody else in the room, whether it's your son or your significant other or a friend watching the movie with you. So you get that like togetherness time that you don't quite get the same way if you're reading. Um, my wife and I frequently read uh are separate things at night after we put the kids to bed. But if we want to spend time together, it's not uncommon for us to pick a show to watch. So it's like, we're, we're still basically separately participating in, in some version of like entertainment, but for some reason, watching a movie together, I don't know. I mean, it's almost like I'm pitching against writing books right now, which is certainly not the case. I'm just trying <laughs> no, to I think, think of the, no, I, and I, I know where you're coming from is, um, but I, I think that movies and books are in many ways, you know, they're in, indelibly in, intertwined. You, you know, there's storytelling in, in both. You know? yes. So, visually i love movies absolutely i love reading books because i can create that world in in my own mind and let's Mm -hmm. say you put my book in front of 10 of those constantine fans and you say okay can you all read my book and just give me your thoughts and if if even if every single one of them came back and said it was like watching a movie in my mind that movie would look different to every one of them yes exactly exactly that's very true and that's why i think that would be an interesting exercise to try with the movie um, as far as the books go, we've had a little bit more of a conversation about this element. Um, going on Twitter is a really effective place to start building those relationships. You and I have talked about this. I've covered this ground on podcasts before, so I'm not going to go deeply here. But the actual author, him or herself, is a great, rich place to start finding people who at least have the partial DNA to build those relationships with. So find people who follow, in this case, um, Oh my goodness. Tom Clancy, find people who follow Tom Clancy and just start interacting with those people, trying to get them to follow you back. It shouldn't take too much on Twitter. You can do the same thing. Find fan groups on Facebook, on Instagram, join those conversations, be among those people because they're going to have some of the right elements to be a fan of your book where you really find a gold mine. And this is true more so for books. I've never tried it with movies and books. I'm sure there's a way and I'll think through it, but if you know two or three books that all kind of fit your book, if you find a reader who liked all three of those, you have hit the gold mine. You've triangulated. You use that as a tactical weapon. Phones can do it. It's the way that police are able to trace phones is they're pinging off of multiple points. So if one person likes three books that all describe your book, 
I guarantee you they'll like your book. And that's where you, where, where you've now found a fan. They don't need to follow you on Twitter. They don't need to be your friend on Facebook. They don't need to be connected to you on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you can verify that they like all three of those books and you can get in touch with them, you can be like, Hey, I too love these books. I wrote a book that's like these. Now, if they don't want to buy that book and check it out, you just need to work on your sales, I think. <laughs> yeah, because they should at that point, right? Yeah, I think so. I think you've done all the work for them at that point of basically saying, there are three things that you love. I went to the work of looking through probably hundreds or thousands of people to find you. So I know for sure you'll like it. Trust me, if it's not worth it, I'll give you your money back. At that point, maybe maybe you do a soft sales pitch. But uh, let's finish off real quick. I've got about four or five minutes. Talk to me a little bit about the process of having worked with me because I think that... Um, one, I have redefined the way that you and I were going to work together. You don't need to talk about that element of it, but, but talk about like the overwhelm, at, uh, the way that you felt about some of the first things I told you to do and how slow it's been. Uh, well, it was really tied into this kind of fi- trying to find an audience on Twitter. I think that was where I keep going back to. Um, I'm not yeah. very active on on Facebook, I, I use that to keep in touch with family and old friends and stuff, yep. especially, you know, cause I'm living in California and all of those family and friends are still in England. So Twitter was really a thing that became instantly overwhelming to me because um, I thought all these people here and I have to, you know, I have to have a voice and I have to have a voice that's going to be heard. And then when I spoke to you, it was, you know, you were really impressing on me <clears throat> doing the work to go and find the people that I can, talk to to then bring value to them in the form of myself and my book mm-hmm. um, my, myself first I think that was the first thing that I got wrong initially about when I go out and start promoting myself it's not I didn't ever say myself I mm-hmm. said I'm going to go out and start promoting my book it was yes. all about my book my book and now it's no it's not I have to rewire my brain and say I have to promote myself it's yeah I am the platform because People are going to want to follow me and then, oh, what's Neil written and what else is coming out? And that's that was really alien to me. Um, just going out and being more social, I think, was was very overwhelming and reaching yeah. out. like It's like cold calling. Who wants mm-hmm. to be? I, I mean, I hope there are no cold callers out there, but <laughs> I, I have no idea how, how those those people do that that job. And yeah. um, it, it just takes it takes a lot just to reach out to somebody you just don't know them can I give you this information and hopefully make you want to buy something from me? Mm-hmm. Um, why would they want to buy it? I'm hoping that someone would say, oh, that the blurb on the back of that book or that pitch, that sounds really interesting. And I'm kind of into that and I'll read it. And wow, that was great. Right. I'd like to read more stuff that you've, uh, that you've written. That's, that's the be all right. So yeah. Yeah. Initially, initially overwhelmed with, having to reach out to what I thought was uh, so many hundreds of thousands, millions of people are all out there. They're all out there on Twitter. They're all doing their thing. And I have to somehow break into that yep. little old me with no voice who nobody knows who I happen to think I've written something. Not Amazing. Bad. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. And, uh, and please read my book and let me know what you think. So more people can read it. That's, that's yeah. the overwhelming part. It's, it's, it's like the, the geometry of that is, you know, fine the angle to get people to do that to me is like uh, something I just did not understand in the beginning. And I'm still just now slowly learning to do it, but it's a long, slow process. And you've given me a couple of of pointers with the fan groups and things like that. And I definitely will do it, but that seems like really hard work. It's odd because of it it does. Right. And and so the hard work that I do every day, the, the work that I do with my job and the stuff I do in the evening and I'm raising a child with special needs, that does not seem as difficult as promoting myself in order to mm. gain a following for, my, for myself and my, and my books. That seems far more overwhelming, but I feel yeah. much better armed to do that now than I did yeah. two months ago. Yeah. I, I, I hear where you're coming from. I wish that, uh, I wish that there was another way to do it. I wish that we lived in a different world because it feels um, unfair that we have to be the creative writers, the ones with the vision 
Um, that in and of itself is so challenging to do. Nobody, nobody can accurately appreciate what it's like to write a book unless you've done it before. So then after all of the hard work of, of bringing that life into this world, then you have to be like, hey, this is the reason why you should value it. <laughs> you know, we right. have parents that did that for us when we were born, um, but we actually create the baby and then are the parents. Like the whole, the whole nine yards, we're everything to the book and to ourselves and our future if we want to succeed. Um, we could go on talking for a really long time. Um, I'm super excited with your book because I know that you are going to do the slow grinding work today to get the book out there. And even if it doesn't publish to rave excitement of thousands of people, you're going to be one of those authors who's well-prepared to have kind of the slow buildup to success. Um, there are so many authors like that, that maybe are published for six months, eight months, a year before uh, their hard work catches up. And um, that's, that's going to happen with, with your book if it doesn't happen out of the gate. And I'm pretty excited about that. Just getting to know your character, you're definitely going to put in the effort. So glad to share your story with my community and uh, we will be in touch. Please, for anybody who's interested in a book that sounds like a mix between Tom Clancy and the visual effects of Constantine, get in touch with uh, Neil. Where's the best place for them to do that, Neil? Uh, Twitter is probably the the best place, at Neil Staley um, on Twitter. My my upcoming book, I can actually mention the name of it, but the upcoming book, uh, it's called The Warrior Gene, um, and it's actually my second book, as, as you mentioned earlier on, but the first book is completely unrelated to that. The Warrior Gene is a, a standalone, but also the first in a potential series. Awesome. Um, so, yes, Twitter, at Neil Staley, is the best place to, to grab okay. me. Perfect. Let's see if we can't bump that uh, Twitter follower account here in the next days. Follow <laughs> Neil. I'll have your uh, socials in the links, uh, the show notes, and we'll be talking again soon. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a big favor right now. Click on the follow button in whatever podcast app you're listening on. That way you'll get notifications every time I drop a new episode. And if you still can't get enough, you can go to the show notes, click the link for my newsletter and sign up today. I'll give you one to two interesting pieces of content every single month that you won't hear on the podcast or find laying around on the internet.